We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to the podcast, we have a woman who needs no introduction and one whose voice is or should be, especially if you're a cinephile, her own introduction. A film writer I remember reading as far back as her days at Cinematical and The Village Voice, as well as the author of Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom and Howard Hughes' Hollywood, and books on George Lucas, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep. The wonderful Karina Longworth is the historian and podcaster behind the acclaimed, addictive, and utterly fascinating series, You Must Remember This, and Vanity Fair's show Love is a Crime as well. Having joined us in the past two seasons for episodes about Dean Martin and erotic 80s titles, Karina, I am so happy and honored to have you back once again to tell us all about the new season of You Must Remember This, devoted to the erotic 90s. But first, how are you doing and how's this year been treating you so far? Well, thanks for having me back. Um, I'm doing well. You know, I've been working hard on erotic 90s and getting really excited to have people listen to it. Yes, absolutely. As we're recording it, it's going to kick off next week. And I can't wait to hear more. And yes, congratulations on the success of your previous season, the riveting water cooler friendly erotic 80s. I loved it. We're right around the same age. So we both grew up in the 80s and 90s. And I love how you're able to add so much color, clarity and dimension to the films, music, pop culture and events that we remember hearing about. I was generously given access to the first two episodes of the erotic 90s, and I love the scope and the context of what I've heard so far. Your prologue, yeah, your prologue episode, which runs nearly 90 minutes, is completely thrilling. It's also (laughs) maddening, funny, eye-opening, and really does a great job of setting up what's to come. So why don't you give us a little sneak preview of the season and how this season and its events differ from the erotic 80s episodes. 
Sure. Well, Erotic 80s, I also began with a prologue, which um, I felt was necessary because I felt like the movies that I wanted to talk about in the 80s were happening because of this sort of these previous events having to do with the rating system and with the creation of the X rating um, that was supposed to be kind of a, a place where you could make movies that were explicitly for adults but were not pornography. Um, and so, you know, the first episode of Erotic 80s was about kind of the peak of that era, which was in 1974 and 1975 with the the releases of two X-rated films that became blockbuster hits, Last Tango in Paris and Deep Throat. Yes. Um, and so this time around with Erotic 90s, there's also a prologue that's also about the rating system because mm-hmm. in 1990, the MPAA replaced the X rating, um, which had become kind of the commercial kiss of death over the course of the 80s. They replaced it with a new rating called NC-17. And the concept behind NC-17, which stood for, I think, no children under 17 allowed it's kind of it's it's kind of clumsy it really Um, is yeah yeah. but um the idea was that it was supposed to do what the x rating had been supposed to do and the argument was you just couldn't call it x anymore because the idea of x or triple x had been appropriated by the porn industry so it just had to be called something different um but in that prologue i kind of explore you know whether or not it was functionally different Hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting. And I thought it was great that you addressed Philip Kaufman's filmography. And you talked about the unbearable lightness of being, which is one of my favorites. And then how that changed with NC-17 and Henry and June. And yeah, it, I think you really dove into something really interesting there. Thank sure. you. Yes. Well, I was intrigued hearing about the ambitious plans for the season and your synopsis of future episodes. What you're planning is awesome because you're going into everything from the censorship battles with NC-17, as we just mentioned, the parental advisory record labels, Anita Hill, Amy Fisher, Magic Johnson, Murphy Brown, and of course, the big new sexual icons of the era, Julia Roberts, Demi Moore, Sharon Stone, Alicia Silverstone, and more. With so much ground to cover, have you thought about doing a companion book or miniseries with TCM or HBO <laughs> or something to go into greater detail or explore or approach subtopics from other angles? I mean, if any of those people want to call me, I'm available. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, right now I can't really think beyond just getting the the podcast episodes finished, sure. um, but you know, I mean, I think that I, you know, of course, I'd love to like, you know, do any of my podcast seasons in sort of another format as a way of kind of reaching more people or different people. Okay, well, we're starting the change.org petition like as soon as we're done recording this. (laughs) But what can you tell us about the research and writing process? Because I've told like a million people that if I wasn't podcasting, I would be like begging you to be a researcher on your show because I love it. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's different. It's a little bit different every season. Um, for Erotic 80s, when I started doing it, all of the sort of libraries and public places where you could do research were closed still for yeah. COVID. So I got really, I've always collected magazines or I had been collecting magazines for a while. And so I, I've decided that the, the way to approach the research for the 80s was to just buy a lot of magazines from eBay about the different topics. Um, and then I also, you know, I would buy like every issue of Playboy magazine for a given year to sort of get a snapshot of mainstream sexuality in that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for Erotic 90s, it was 
kind of more of the same. This time I was able to also visit the Academy of Motion Pictures, um, Margaret Herrick Library in Los Angeles. And and also uh, my research assistant, Lindsay Schoenholtz, and I have set up kind of a, a different system where we, you know, she has like a list of of all these different websites, like the New York Times, the LA Times, Time Magazine, mm-hmm. all these places that have archives online. And so for a given topic, she like searches that topic on all of these websites and then like sends me a document of like with the links to all those stories. So it's it's really, really useful because then I can just sort of, you know, click through to all these stories and 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 find the information that interests me. Yes. Well, one thing I loved about your last season is it kind of helped um, buoy my interest in sex and gender in films and um, make me not so much like an outlier in that regard. Um, My friend Jed Ayers was working on a research project and he was asking people, you know, how do you get access to um, Playboy archives or whatever? And I I had all of these ideas for him (laughs) out of the entire group of like, I was the only girl and I I gave him all these ideas and I'm like hey don't look at me like that Karina Longworth is doing brilliant things with the Playboy archives right now (laughs) well thank you (laughs) well I know you're doing pre-recorded intros for a tie-in screening series with the American Cinematheque and I wish I could see them I'm not going to be in LA for the month of April but is there anything else on deck that you would like to tell us about are those intros maybe going to be made available on the website for people in other places um I don't know about that I can ask um I can ask the Cinematheque if they would be okay with that I think like Maybe sure. after um after this oh, yeah. is over, you know, because it's like a specific value add for um of course. For those those ticket buyers. But the only reason why I'm not gonna be um there in person to do intros is because I'm not gonna be in Los Angeles for the next couple of months. So um gotcha. but uh yeah, it's I, I hope you will come out to those screenings. Um we're gonna Right now we have a schedule through the end of May. So every Tuesday through the end of May, except for a couple of weeks when the Cinematheque is doing their own festivals like Beyond Fest, mm-hmm. um, there's going to be a screening of Erot- Erotic Tuesdays, a screening of a movie that I talk about on the podcast. And then we're going to do more screenings in the fall as well. Oh, that is so great. I was going to ask you about that because I thought that was fascinating when I was listening today, actually, when you mentioned, you know, unlike the 80s, when you could do one episode per year for this, you said something like it's 12 episodes just to get to 93. And so I didn't know how you were going to divide up that because that is just a gigantic undertaking. Are you going to take some like a break this year and have a little break between part one and part two of the 90s or yeah it's kind of like because there are so many films that i wanted to talk about in 1992 and 1993 um basically the first two-thirds of the season take us through the end of 1995 so that's 14 14 episodes and then i'm going to take a little bit of a summer hiatus and then come back with seven episodes in the fall and that's like a little bit more year to year. So that basically covers from um, 1996 until 1999. Okay. Yeah. I wondered about that because I just thought that's too much work for you. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I really liked the idea uh, with erotic 80s of trying to tell the story of the decade from year to year and finding one film or a couple of films or a star or a couple of stars that were emblematic of that year. Mm -hmm. But for the 90s, I just, I found that format to be a little bit too limiting and 
Um, I thought I would rather have more episodes and be able to talk about more than to try to cram too much into fewer episodes. I mean, there are still episodes where I I end up talking about like six movies. Um, (laughs) There's there's an episode called The Fatal Attractions Children, um, which is about like all these movies like Presumed Innocent and Hand the Rock's a Cradle and Single White Female that were Mm -hmm. all kind of rushed into production to – um, capitalize on the success of Fatal Attraction. And it's all about this idea of the blank from hell. Yes. Um, you know, the roommate <laughs> from hell, the neighbor from hell, the coworker from hell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when it came to selecting a few films to chat about today, you opted for three very rich, hotly debated early 90s titles, including Pretty Woman from 1990, Thelma and Louise, which was directed a year later, and 1993's Indecent Proposal, which I vaguely remember us talking about and bonding over last year. <laughs> so I listened to your uh, Pretty Woman episode this morning, and I loved it so much. I'm going to listen to that one again. I found Thank myself you. completely riveted. It's filled with really brilliant, astute analysis, I think, like fresh takes on it. So much detail that was completely new to me. And I think a great overview of Julia Roberts' rise to fame and the evidence of, of course, something that no stranger to your podcast would, that is no stranger, would be the media bias of the double standard uh, in how she and the film were written about contemporaneously. So I will let you take it away on Pretty Woman. Yeah, I mean, Pretty Woman, like a lot of people, I think, of my generation, it's a movie I'd seen, you know, dozens of times. Um, I probably saw it too young uh, (laughs) because I did see it in the theater, um, you know, in 1990, right before my 10th birthday. Oh, wow. Um, So it's it's something that's just kind of been a part of me for a long time. Um, But watching it again for this project and, you know, being in my 40s now, I was able to kind of see it differently and um, just sort of think about it. I I mean, I, I ultimately think that it's kind of both um, an incredible throwback to sort of a classical genre film, a romantic comedy, screwball comedy of the yeah. 30s and 40s. And also it's it's very, in its own way, it's kind of radical um, in terms of, of its approach to these ideas about sex and capitalism, um, considering it's being made and released by Disney in 1990. Yes, you brought up so many great points. You were talking about the comedy of remarriage analysis from the the 30s era. And you were also, you know, saying it was the Bush era and we're being asked to identify with the streetwalker and just how novel that is that on the one level, people are watching it and seeing the consumerist angle of, oh, can she shop? Can she not? And it does have a Pygmalion, a makeover component, but we're asked to empathize with her and, you know, we're in her shoes before she becomes, you know, the she gets the whole Beverly Hills makeover, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when you really break down scene to scene how this movie works, um, you it the movie is not saying that, you know, she is she should be judged harshly because of what she does for a living. No. The movie the movie is and it also doesn't say that she needs to really fundamentally change who she is. Um, mm-hmm. She just has to get more appropriate outfits for certain situations. <laughs> um, whereas the Richard Gere character, who's this corporate raider, um, whose whole life is sort of about buying and selling things and people, he does have to fundamentally change not only who yes. he is, but how he does business and how he approaches human beings. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, I was sort of able to tap into this idea that like, it's not just a movie about this woman and women's issues and sexuality in terms of women, but it's also about men and masculinity. Um, and that's actually a theme that I keep coming back to throughout this season, which is that we're like, there's so much conversation then and now about like, is this movie or is this pop culture event good for women or bad for women? Mm-hmm. And I, that. When we focus on that, we can sometimes miss what these things are saying about men. Um, And, you know, we're like right now in like 2022, 2023, we are having conversations about toxic masculinity, which is a phrase that was not in common use in 1990, even though these movies are portraying it. Yeah, 100%. You know, it's interesting. You talked about seeing this just before your 10th birthday. For whatever reason, I grew up in a household pretty liberal where we could watch everything. But for whatever reason, Pretty Woman is not a film I saw until high school. Like Dirty Dancing was another one. It's it's very strange. Mm-hmm. Like the, the two sleepover movies I didn't see until <laughs> high school. It was bananas. But anyway, I remember when this was on television, watching it, my dad like walked in. This is someone who showed me like Die Hard when I was in second grade. <laughs> and uh, so he walks in in Pretty Woman and he said, you know, what she does for a living, Jen, is not a good thing for women to do. And I just kind of looked at him like, I know what a hooker is, Dad. We watched Taxi Driver. And, you know, <laughs> so it was kind of funny that um, their big concern or when you talk to men about this movie is the angle on her and does it glamorize what she's doing. And then when you actually pay attention to the text of the film and what they're saying, in no way are they saying this is glamorous or whatever. And we're actually judging um, the male characters and their treatment of her because of it in new light, which I think is really, um, yeah, it's kind of mind blowing when you start thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, certainly, like, at the time, there was a lot of hand-wringing that, you know, yeah. teenage girls were going <laughs> to run away from home and start streetwalking so that they could meet, meet Richard, Richard Gere. Gere. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think that Pretty Woman um, does that. I don't think that no. it, it, it advertises streetwalking, but I also don't think it demonizes it. I don't think it says that no. she or her roommate Kit are less than human or um, mm-hmm. and and when when Richard Gere does kind of treat her as such, you know, the movie is against him. Hmm. Yeah. And I also think it's a really good contrast. And we see um, how he thinks he is treating her a certain way. You know, I never treated you like a hooker or whatever. Well, you just did. And then we also see the Jason Alexander character and um, right. what happens with um, someone else from his station, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's. It's an interesting movie. And I also thought it was great that you paired it with the other Julia Roberts one that was around this time, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy. And you mentioned um, stuff about flatliners. And I also love that you referenced Mystic Pizza because (laughs) I'm a fan of that one. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, Sleeping with the Enemy was an interesting one to revisit. You know, I think it has like a 23 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, (laughs) It's a movie that was not, you know, well reviewed at its time and like nobody's kind of thought to revisit it or rediscover it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think it's a bad film at all. Um it's just, you know, maybe it's it's not at the top tier of some of the movies that we're talking <laughs> about, but um there's definitely interesting stuff in it. And in terms of I mean, it's kind of just as the way that Pretty Woman is sort of able to kind of put forth what I think are pretty 
progressive ideas in a movie that is also like a celebration of capitalism and is also, <laughs> you know, very in tune with certain things in the culture of 1990. I mean, I think that Sleeping with the, Sleeping with the Enemy is able to use its genre as a kind of Trojan horse to um, kind of talk about women in dangerous situations and their marriages, you know, abused women. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, it's just like, Reading some of the reviews, there was, you know, there were some questions amongst critics as to like whether or not it would be justified for her to kill her husband who's trying to kill her. And, I know. you know, like when you think about like that, that's where the discourse was, the movie mm -hmm. feels even more necessary. Yes. And I love that you cited a review. I can't remember if it was Hollywood Reporter or Variety where the critic at the time was saying, you know, men, uh, the women you bring will be like clutching you because they'll be scared. And so you were saying, yes, he is. First of all, you defined preternaturally, which I thought was fabulous. But then you were also, um, oh, I think that was about pretty woman. But when you were talking about this one, you're saying, so basically they're asking if Sleeping with the Enemy, a film about uh, marital abuse, <laughs> will get you laid, essentially. And I thought that was, yeah, a good way to look at <laughs> uh, criticism from that era. And pointing out, uh, too, when you talked about the consumerism of pretty woman it reminded me of you know Romy and Michelle do you remember that mm -hmm. film yeah uh, totally <laughs> yes when they're watching pretty woman and I love that you brought up the sad music when she walks away and she's refused to shop because they brought that up as well and I was just thinking you know if Romy and Michelle were real people they would love this season for sure <laughs> oh good I'm glad <laughs> <laughs> you're like that's what I was going for no <laughs> Yes. Well, next up, we have the now iconic yet controversial and divisive Ridley Scott film, Thelma and Louise, from screenwriter Callie Curry. My feelings about this one have always been a little bit complicated. I think it's extraordinarily well acted. Performances are, you know, amazing. It's well crafted. But every time I watch it, I want to like it more than I actually do. I'm not sure if that's just me. So what are your thoughts on it? That's interesting. I hadn't seen it in many, many years until I watched it for um, this Me podcast. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I didn't remember it very well. I think I kind of remembered the key scenes, yes. but, you know, not really the, what it's like to watch. And um, I found, like, it takes a while to really get going, to mm -hmm. really kind of suck you in. Um, it definitely feels slow, slowish <laughs> for yes. a while. And then it just sort of, at some point, it kind of takes off and you realize that, like, you know, you're, I mean, at least I did. I felt like enraptured at some point, um, and just extremely sucked into the story and and into their lives. Um, you know, I think it's. I can only imagine what it would would have been like to be watching it in a movie theater at that time. Um, it mm -hmm. feels like it's kind of doing something similar to what something like Fatal Attraction is doing, where it it. Um, has the ability to make people on either sides of the political spectrum, men, women, wherever you're coming from, angry for different reasons. I remember going to a parent-teacher conference, um, and I had not seen it, of course. And my mom, I'm sitting next to her, and my teacher brought this one up. My teacher was male, and they just went back and forth and were talking about Thelma and Louise. And it was kind of like, yeah, Jen's great. And then they just went off and started talking <laughs> about Thelma. So before I even saw it, I knew the whole plot line of, of Thelma and Louise because that's all anybody was talking about at the time. Yeah, and, and I remember the Time magazine cover, and I remember, yes. you know, hearing conversations about it on the radio and 
Um, yeah, but then it's like when you actually look at the box office numbers, um, that conversation wasn't really reflected in profitability. That's true. <laughs> yes. Well, I think uh, it, you make a really good point that it does take a while until we're on the road with them to actually feel like we're in the car and we're on the journey. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of it. Um, I think part of it for me was I always felt it was a little bit too manipulative in places that that just might be me like gets a little cartoonish with the trucker and some of those (laughs) things, you know, I mean, I think it is benefiting uh, the women keep us firmly grounded. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon are great. Also, the men in the film, Harvey Keitel, Michael Madsen, they're all good. And Brad Pitt, of course, you know, iconic. But I think Ridley Scott does a good job. I I read that Michelle Pfeiffer talked him into directing this one. And I thought that was a fascinating, I don't know if you, you probably know far more about it, but yes. Well, yeah, he was kind of signed on to be a producer. Um, And at first, first, Callie Curry wanted to direct it herself. And then, you know, it was just sort of, it got to the point where it's like, you know, you're already kind of pushing the envelope (laughs) with the content. Like, it would oh, yeah. be too hard to get made with you as a f- first-time director mm-hmm. and as a woman director. So we need to, like, get some man in here. <laughs> and um, Ridley Scott signed on to produce it because he loved the material, but he didn't want to direct it himself. And um, he was trying to, like, find other directors for it. And one of the people he talked to was his brother, Tony. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And I, I have this in my episode about it. I don't remember the exact, like, conversation, but it was something like, Tony said to Ridley, like, I can't do this because I have so many problems with women. <laughs> and Ridley was like, that's exactly why you, I think you should do it. Oh, um, it would have been but, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he ultimately, Ridley Scott, I guess, was just like, you know, I I can't find anybody else to do it. And in the process of trying to find somebody else to do it, he realized why he wanted to do it. Um, oh, and I do think he good. brings like this incredible scope to it. Yes. Um, that is really exciting. I I mean, my big problem with the construction of the film is the very ending mm-hmm. um, with this sort of like, you know, sentimental montage of their greatest times together. I, I agree with you. Like, I think it that kind of it changes it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just I really think that the reason to do that is because. If you just end the movie with, like, the car crashing against the rocks, first of all, like, what are you going to do? You're going to, like, cut to Harvey Keitel's reaction and then, like, the like the end note is a man's reaction. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. also it's just, like, people would be so angry leaving the movie theater that they'd riot. I mean, it's like you sort of need to give them, a like, a send them out in tears. Like, don't send them out, like, you know, mm-hmm. with their fists clenched. Yeah, that's a good point. It does feel like a 70s film. Um, you know, you can kind of, this would be an interesting one to watch opposite, you know, Alice doesn't live here anymore, or woman under the influence or a couple of these together as some sort of a film festival, because it does feel like kind of goes with those movies. But yeah, that ending thing is, is like, you know, everybody take a breath, go back out into the lobby. Like, this was just a film kind of thing. Yeah, I can't imagine. It was so devastating, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, I'm looking forward to hearing this episode. You kind of touched on in the uh, prologue and also a little bit when you were talking about sleeping with the enemy and abuse and marital rape that I'm sure date rape comes up because that is um, part of the film. Um, For or sure, point, yeah. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to hearing all um, sides of that. 
Um, also background on how she wrote it. Um, yeah. So I am really looking forward to learning more about that for sure. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for you to hear that episode and for everyone to hear it. <laughs> I know. Well, lastly, we have a film by the great erotic bard of the 80s, Adrian Lyne, with Indecent Proposal that for a while, I remember you couldn't turn on like a TV or open up a magazine <laughs> and not be presented with an angle or somebody's opinion on uh, the film's premise, which finds the obscenely rich Robert Redford offering cash strap desperately in debt, Woody Harrelson, $1 million for one night with his wife, played by Demi Moore. It's a film that I think is surprisingly better than its reputation. I actually remember liking it way back then. Me um, too. Yeah, I rented <laughs> it from... I loved hearing that you were a video store kid and would rent things every week, same thing. And so I remember seeing this when it was new and I was like, wow, this was so much better than all the jokes on television. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked this movie. This was a movie that I snuck in to see in the movie theater um, <laughs> when I was 12 years old. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, this week, that just at the City Walk at Universal, um, they I saw so many R-rated movies there just by myself at age 12, 13, 14. And, you know, there was absolutely no issue about it. So um, the rating system was broken, <laughs> remains broken. Um, but... Yeah, I liked it at the time, too. And then, you know, I I rewatched it maybe. I think it was in 2020. I was the first time I had rewatched it in a long time. And I was like, I'm sure this doesn't hold up. I'm really like not looking forward to watching this. And then I felt like it really did hold up. And it's because yeah. of this thing that I was talking about a minute ago, which is that, you know, everybody wants to, like, focus the conversation on whether or not you know, this woman who has sex with Robert Redford for a million dollars <laughs> is a good role model. And mm -hmm. everybody wants to, like, at the time, so much of the discourse was about, like, you know, are we endorsing prostitution? And yeah. um, can't, like, why aren't there any good roles for women where it's not about their sexuality? Um, but when I watch the movie today, I just see it's like it, the ultimate are men okay movie. <laughs> like, it's completely sure. about the male fragility. Yes, because Woody Harrelson agrees to it and then immediately has second thoughts and runs after her and becomes a thing of does he just chase her down because it's going on or what, you know, it's about um, possession and ownership a little bit and just jealousy and also needing to communicate things with your partner. I thought that was also a fascinating um, avenue that you brought up when talking about Pretty Woman, which was equality in relationships and some of the basic conversations that you need to have if somebody has more power like well they need to respect me because of me and not just because of who you are that kind mm -hmm. of thing and so I think this movie has a lot of uh, issues with class and um, you know gender and I think also I think Woody Harrelson doesn't get enough credit for just how good he he is especially he was back then you know i think everybody just saw him as the guy from cheers or totally. white men can't jump that kind of thing and then you watch this and you realize boy he has some dramatic chops to me more i think was always great i mean everyone knows robert redford of course but um i think their relationship their chemistry their performances are so good and if we don't buy them then the movie doesn't work yeah. And, you know, a lot of the reviews of the movie, which are generally negative, um, uh, talked about how implausible the premise is, as though, like, there's <laughs> never been a movie that was sort of a fairy tale before. You know, I mean, yeah. it's it, like 
I don't know. It just it's it feels so clear to me that this and and some of the other movies that you know were dealt with in erotic eighties and in erotic nineties are an allegory. Um, it's sure. not it's not instructional. <laughs> um, it's <laughs> it it's, shouldn't be. Yeah. No, I mean it's just like whatever relationships people want to have, I'm fine yes. with. But like what this movie is not saying like you should go out and find a billionaire to sell your wife to. It's <laughs> you know it's sort of using this allegorical situation um, to talk about things that are more universal between men and women. Yes. Yeah. Um, open relationships and being um, honest with your partner or um, what can you forgive? What can you um, survive? That kind of thing. I think there's a lot going on in this film. Uh, Demi Moore is an interesting person to focus on uh, in this era. I mean, she kind of had the sort of um, launch of Ghost was kind of one of her huge breakthroughs. I mean, she had been in stuff for a few years earlier, seen almost yeah, fire. But Ghost, and, Ghost yeah. definitely like launched her to a new yeah. um, echelon of stardom. <laughs> and then, you know, she has like all these hits in a row. She has basically, yes. I think there's nothing in between these hits of Ghost, in, uh, A Few Good Men, Indecent Proposal and Disclosure. Yeah, um, And so it's based on that run that she gets this sort of one-two punch of becoming the highest paid actress in history to that point with striptease and G.I. Jane. Yeah, it's another question of then when they reach that level of, well, what kind of material are they given or <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. Um, but you know what I mean? I I can't I can't rank either GI Jane or striptease amongst my favorite <laughs> films, but just as um you know sort of the choice of material she continually she makes movies daring yeah yeah she continually makes movies about that that place her body at the center and ask questions about like what do we value I about know. women and how does their physicality relate to that and so yeah. I, I just think that's really interesting and you know she also used her power and her money to produce projects like if these walls could talk and now and then and um so really good and what i was going to say is just um at this this week when i was revisiting indecent proposal i thought okay i'm gonna go to the other end of the spectrum here and watch disclosure um (laughs) and you know i think she's phenomenal in that the movie is not great Mm -hmm. but um she's amazing in it she has some really um great scenes where she makes you, you know, she makes you uncomfortable. She kind of has that Glenn Close uh, thing, but she also is bringing up some double standards about men and women. And I think, you know, that is what to me was very good at. And I think, you know, it's easy to look at this era and just remember Julia Roberts or Sharon Stone. And I think people need to give to me some more credit for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, just thinking about this whole era, and I I now want to watch uh, Sleeping with the Enemy again, because I don't think I've seen that probably since the early 90s myself when you were (laughs) working on this season. And I know you're still writing it right now. And so I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. But were there any movies that you either had completely missed or when you were researching and revisiting them played differently or you want to make sure you give a special shout out to that we should think about maybe watching ahead of uh, the season so we can kind of be right in there without spoilers yeah i mean one of my um certainly my bigger biggest discovery i would say a movie that was completely new to me um that i watched for the season and that i talk about is this film called impulse starring teresa russell directed by sandra Locke. 
Um, I don't know that one. Okay. So Sandra Locke was an actress. She was nominated for an Oscar, um, I think, in the late 60s. And then pretty okay. quickly after that, she started working with Clint Eastwood. And she was sort of his mistress and longtime girlfriend mm-hmm. um, and was in several Clint Eastwood movies. And then she started directing her own films. And so Impulse is her second feature um, and she was actually making it as she was breaking up with Clint Eastwood, and she would end up suing him for palimony in oh, wow. what was sort of a landmark case. Um, but um, so Impulse is about a female cop played in in the LAPD, played by Teresa Russell, who's she's on the vice squad, but she moonlights um, working to uh, like as like a decoy hooker to try to um, entrap Johns. And um, one night she's really frustrated at like a bust gone wrong and mm-hmm. she goes to a bar and somebody tries to pick her up for real and she goes home with him and then the whole plot kind of spins out of control from there. Um, but it's a it's a really interesting movie um, sort of using um, noir conventions, genre conventions to center this woman's story Um and, you know, it's pulp, it's kind of pulpy. It's it's low budget. Um, but I think Teresa Russell's performance is is really great. And I mean, there's certain things that kind of became conventions of like 90s noir, neo-noir, L.A. noir that you see Sandra Locke doing here in I think the movie was 1990. Um, so really early on. Um, and she definitely was an extremely stylish director. Um, and it's just kind of a shame that her personal life and her lawsuits mm-hmm. with Clint Eastwood kind of kept her away from um, making more films. Boy, yeah, I'm going to have to check that one out. I can't wait. Well, so we're the third episode of the season is about Teresa Russell. So it's a it's about that film and it's about um, the Ken Russell film Whore. Okay. Um, and then oh, I remember when that one was released. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of about her whole sexual persona and then those two movies at that time. Um, and so we're actually showing both of them in the American Cinematheque series. Um, Horror is, I think, the third week of the series and then Impulse is after that. Um, but other people who can't come to the screenings, you can get Impulse on Apple TV for you can rent it or buy it. Okay, perfect. And then as far as the other films being played in the series, do you want to give a shout out to those uh, titles? Yeah, I, I don't have the list in front of me. And it's oh, it's okay. a little it's a little <laughs> bit different from um, the podcast schedule, just because oh, okay. like there's certain weeks where they could like get a print and, you know, stuff like mm-hmm. that. But uh, I'm definitely excited for people to see Impulse because I think it is one of those lesser known films. And horror is really difficult to see. I mean, I to just write about it for this um, for this podcast, I had to buy a bootleg DVD. Um, so that that's definitely something to come out for. Um, and then you know, I'm just I'm always excited like to go to a screening of something like Body of Evidence, um, which yeah. is something that I think like people might have um, an idea about, but don't really know what that movie is like. You know, I remember seeing it probably on USA Network or TBS way back <laughs> in the day. So, yes, I would love to uh, to see that on the big yeah. screen. And I'm sure the cable version was highly edited because, yes, the, so, you know, Body of Evidence has one goodness. of the most graphic sex scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And I love that in the episodes that I heard you talk about Madonna. Of course, you know, you use some of her uh, music in your intro, which is good. Uh, the erotic song. Um, But what I was going to say is I loved the idea that you touched on with her in the suit in the David Fincher video where she grabs her genitals, which is kind of a play on masculinity. So you were pointing out that people look at Madonna a certain way, but they should really 
question what she was doing. And I, I like the idea of bringing in music in this. Um, I mean, you touched on it in the eighties as well, but talking about the two live crew and some of the censorship um, is music going to play a bigger role as the season continues to roll out. You know, I wish there was space to, to, you know, talk about everything. Um, yeah, there, you know, that's true. <laughs> I, I, I bring I bring these things up here and there where I, you know, I want to kind of set the context for when for these sure. movies are coming out. Um, there is a whole episode about Madonna, which is partially about body of evidence, but is also about the erotica album and the sex mm. book. Um, but other oh, than yeah. that, there's not that much music. Um, there is a whole episode about Murphy Brown and Dan Quayle. <laughs> so I remember that. that. You know, yep. goes kind of um diverges from movies a little bit there. Um, but you know, I think it I, I bring it up when I can, but it's just yeah. not always all that possible to fit everything in. The, as Absolutely. you as you noted, like when the episodes are already so long, <laughs> like an hour and a half long, it's just like I can't include everything that I want to include. I know. So what we're saying again to people listening, um, you know, HBO, TCM, PBS, <laughs> give her people a call and let's get something. Yeah. Let's give Karina even more work to do. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes. Well, I also love that you are touching on uh, the Amy Fisher um, issue. I remember that vividly growing up. Do you remember there were like three competing television movies? I oh, think yeah. For each network, I'm sure, because you probably yeah. cover it in your episode. I do. But... I covered in that episode. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me that there's a whole section in that episode about the Alicia Silverstone Aerosmith videos. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember one with Drew Barrymore. Was it Alyssa Milano? And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so I think it's good. I mean, so that kind of crosses over from news events to pop culture so you are able to sort of bridge uh, the issues again and kind of set up context in an interesting way and i'm looking forward to the alicia silverstone angle too because she was one of the few people i think i remember you saying this on twitter that kind of fought back against that whole lolita um being depicted as a Lolita in yeah, uh, it's media. it's really interesting. Like I I put her and Drew Barrymore in the same episode because okay when when Elisa Silverstone like was in these videos and st- kind of started doing press for the first time and then her movie The Crush came out, um you know people kept bringing up Drew Barrymore to her and saying you know so you're the new Drew Barrymore and she mm-hmm. would have to I mean. I don't envy the position she was in, but, you know, no. she was she was an actual teenage girl. And so she was responding in sort of a, like in a, a self-assured, impulsive teenage way where she's like, <laughs> no, I'm not Drew Barrymore. I'm nothing like Drew Barrymore. How dare you? <laughs> and, and so it's just it's just really interesting, like the what the culture was expecting of beautiful teenage girls versus like, you know, how the the minor ways in which they could assert themselves within that culture. Yes. And I'm also looking forward to episodes on Sharon Stone. Of course, she's very uh, iconic for the 90s, the films that she made, the thrillers. Um, I remember Sliver and, of course, Basic Instinct. And she is somebody that really was dragged through the mud in the press. And so I can't wait to hear what you were there any big surprises when you were um, researching Sharon Stone? I mean, you probably remember some of uh, the press and stuff growing up in this yeah. time. But, I yeah. mean, I, I guess I'd say like a couple of things that I didn't really know about, for instance, are the 
it was a sort of a, a romance marriage sex scandal that happened <laughs> um, in the making of Sliver where um, Sharon Stone kind of stole somebody's husband and then oh, wow. the, the jilted wife like got together with somebody else. I don't want to like say too much about it because it's coming oh, sure. up in an yeah. episode. But um, but then another thing that was really interesting to me was the way that there was um, – you know, debate, as I said earlier, you know, there's so much debate at this time about like whether these actresses and what they played on screen was good for women or bad for women. And, you know, it seemed like there was sort of a feminist consensus that like Sharon Stone was bad for the cause. Um, And even Mm -hmm. though she was really vocal from the very beginning that she Mm -hmm. hadn't understood what Paul Verhoeven was actually shooting in that interrogation scene. I remember that. um, Women who identified as feminists or who were sort of critiquing um, Hollywood's depictions of women would often, you know, call her out by name and say things like, like, you know, like she shouldn't have spread her legs. Um, And so this is this is a theme in the season where it's it's like there's all this debate about, you know, how Hollywood should represent women, but women can't agree about it, you know, That's because true. it's like, I mean, why, why should they have to? <laughs> like, yeah, we're not a monolith. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It, it kind of led to, you know, it led to some um, discourse that, you know, could definitely alienate women away from, you know, this sort of boilerplate 1970s type of feminism. For sure. Yeah. Boy, can you imagine if any of these films came out and in the era of Twitter discourse and social media. <laughs> oh my God. I don't think I could be on Twitter. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I love that you are celebrating the fact that we did make movies where adults had, um, you know, complexity and they were had some three-dimensionality to them. They weren't perfect. Like you were saying, these aren't instructional. These aren't aspirational. These are just people and some rich uh, characterizations, great performances. And yeah, I do miss these kinds of films that that make you, uh, that challenge you and make you question things. Yeah, totally. So I love that you are calling attention to them. I think, you know, I've always loved uh, erotic films, especially the thrillers of the era, because I think they do give women interesting things to play even if they're not necessarily the greatest films and so I think looking at it through a modern lens and going back is really admirable and I just want to thank you as a listener and yes so I can't wait to hear more from erotic 90s and I just want to thank you so much for doing this it's always such a pleasure Karina oh thank you for having me it's always fun yes of course you'll have to come back yeah I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link.
The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.